distance balls. Sure, they go far, but do they do anything else? The new ERC Soft does. Callaway completely reinvented the way a distance ball performs. Engineered with a new, fast, hybrid cover and a graphene-infused dual soft-fast core, it's a new kind of distance ball, one that actually feels soft and spins more. And once you're on the green, ERC Soft's triple track technology will help you dial in your alignment. Get Callaway's longest ball with soft feel today at callawaygolf.ca. I'd like to see one or more of the parties having some sense that, that money is not just simply free. And if you look at the, the, the promises that are happening. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10 Today, Emily Jackson speaks with National Post columnist Andrew Coyne about why he thinks none of the federal leaders are taking deficits seriously this election. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your audio. And we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. I want to talk about deficits. One of the things that struck me from the debate last night was when there was one question about deficits, a lot of the leaders pivoted to talk about healthcare instead. And I thought that was just this really interesting example of how no one's paying attention to this big, giant issue that we have here. What was your reaction to that? Well, it's the reaction I've had throughout the campaign that it seems to have fallen off the table to some extent with some justice. That is to say, we have to avoid thinking that the question is either we continue as we are and we go into perdition or we, you know, hell in a handcart uh, or, you know, the only alternative is slashing austerity, et cetera. You can be worried about the deficit without thinking it's going to make send us to the poorhouse. And it's a more, and that's, I suppose, what bedevils these questions is. Once we decided that the crisis was passed, the crisis of the 1990s, which really was a crisis, then it's hard to get people to mount the, the barricades to, to, for such an, um, uh, an abstract thing as a balanced budget. And we're seeing that in the, in the election campaign. And I think particularly those on the right uh, use the deficit as a crutch that you could argue against this or that program by saying we can't afford it. Uh, well, no, we can afford it. We can run de- small deficits, uh, you know, assuming nothing bad happens. Uh, indefinitely, but it, it's just whether whether that's a sensible or prudent way to go about it, I don't know. I think that's the challenge that we have. You know, it is assuming nothing bad happens. We're 10 years about into an economic cycle now. The indicators are piling up to indicate a recession might be coming. Given this environment that is a little bit dicier than it has been over the past 10 years, why do deficits matter in this moment in time? Well, you, you put your finger on it is you're building up risk. The longer you're staying in deficit 10 years after the last recession, as you say, the chances being that at some point not too far in the future, the, the odds of us going into another recession are mounting. Uh, and when that happens, typically you see a, sometimes quite a large explosion in, in, uh, in deficits and debt. Uh, when you're at this stage in the business cycle, you're supposedly you're supposed to be, if not balance the budget, in surplus. The problem is we've got hold of this new target now where we're not worrying about balanced budgets. We're just worried about a declining debt to GDP ratio. And when you do the math, you can run debts, deficits of in excess of 1% of GDP at infinitum that way. But again, the longer you do that, uh, the more you're building up trouble. And of course, People say, oh, as long as the debt-to-GDP ratio is declining, we're fine. Yeah, that's what the standard is now. Now, a lot of people looked at the liberal platform in particular and said, that's not actually going to be, it's actually going to be a rising debt-to-GDP ratio. And when and if that happens, 
you can just imagine what the response will be. Well, yeah, but it's not rising very, very fast, or, or we're going to try and keep it level from now on. The, the, the standard keeps slip, slipping because there's no absolute value to a declining debt-to-GDP ratio either. Declining from what? Maybe, maybe it should be lower than it is right now. It's, it's just a way of kind of kicking the can down the road and avoiding uh, making tough choices. So it's essentially a moving target. It becomes a moving target. That's right. And it essentially, it's a kind of a looser version of a balanced budget. So now instead of having a zero deficit, we'll have a deficit of 1% of GDP. So it basically, the main appeal for politicians is it gives you another 1% of GDP to, of spending money to play around with and allows you to pose as being more caring and more generous than the ones who want to balance the budget. But the other way of looking at it is it means you don't have to make as many uh, choices. You could, instead of having to say, what's our top priority? What's the thing we most need to send, spend scarce public dollars on? And let's cut out the stuff that's not so essential. You can have it all. And you can have the stuff that's not very essential, which is why you, how you get uh, you know, subsidies for camping trips uh, as, as, a, as a campaign plank. Which to me is so crazy. You know, that is to me the equivalent of a household that is in high amount of debt, taking out a little bit more debt to go on that vacation. Not to mention the fact that not everyone likes camping, Yeah, but I digress. It really <laughs> works me up on that one. What, when it comes to that approach that polish politicians seemingly more comfortable with building in that extra wiggle room so they can promise something to everyone, it must be said, and the argument for more deficits right now is that money's cheap right now. Interest rates are so low why shouldn't they spend now before the rates increase and it costs a bit more to pay back that debt? There's no doubt that interest rates are historic lows, which means they can only go up for one thing. Uh, but secondly, they're not zero. Uh, so there is still a cost to borrowing. And if you're, you know, traditionally the idea is you can borrow for things that will pay a dividend to the, to the government, to society that exceeds that cost of borrowing. So typically, you do not borrow, for example, for current consumption items. And if you look at most of what's being promised in this election, it's current consumption stuff. It's not infrastructure or things that will build the economy for the long run and, and pay off in higher productivity and higher, higher output in the long run uh, that future generations will be able to share in. And that's another issue here that I'll come back to. It's stuff that's very short-term and immediate and has an immediate payoff for today's voters. Well, that does not meet the test, most of that, uh, for anything that you should prudently borrow for. And secondly, yeah, you're leaving a significant group of people out of the equation who don't get to vote on this. If future generations got to vote, they might say, you know what, I don't think I want to see my tax dollars going to pay for your camping trips. Uh, I'm a little worried about the consequences of that. So it's, there's a sort of intergenerational equity issues that are raised. Um, and as I say, you're also not focusing, if you're going to borrow, uh, you're not focusing on things that are going to pay for uh, pay long run dividends. I'm of the school that says, if you're really serious about applying that test, uh, that it should have to pay some kind of dividend. And there should be some sort of proof, some evidence that it's actually paying that dividend. And most of the things that actually meet that test that have that evidence, things like uh, infrastructure where you can charge user fees for it, which is the theory behind the infrastructure bank. When you look at those things, you say, well, if you can pay, uh, if, if, if you can charge users for it and finance it that way, then you don't need the government. You know, what you need the government for is things that can't be paid for by consumers, that can only be paid for through taxes. And you shouldn't use up scarce tax dollars on things that you could pay for in other ways. It comes down to that choice and setting a priority. How would you evaluate the liberal strategy? They came into power four years ago, largely because, or in part, uh, because of their different strategy. They said, look, 
you know what, we're going to run a deficit where these other guys are going to be balancing the budget. What do you make of that strategy and their plans going forward? It certainly worked for them in 2015. It set them apart from the other parties, particularly from the NDP. It made them look bold. It made them look uh, iconoclastic. They weren't prisoners of this orthodoxy. So it turned out to be a master stroke. It's actually when they won the election, I think, is when they, I think it was almost in the same weekend when the NDP came out with their balanced budget plan and they came out with saying, no, we're going to run small deficits, no more than $10 billion for two years, then we'll balance the budget after ha, four ha, years. Ha. Exactly. And that shows you that how the way in which the, 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 the slope can be very uh, slippery. Since then, I mean, people sometimes get on Justin Trudeau's case for saying the budget will balance itself. And of course, anybody knows any economics knows there's a certain amount of truth in that. If you have a modicum of fiscal discipline and economic growth, the revenues, the rising revenues will tend to lead towards a balanced budget. And in fact, what we've seen is it's required Herculean efforts to prevent the budget from balancing. We've had so much revenues coming in because we've had steady economic growth and they've also, they raised taxes. Uh, and and any time it threatened to balance, they would spend more to use up the, 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 the dividend. I think it was very much a deliberate political strategy, in other words, to keep the budget in deficit so as to put, I think, the opposition on the wrong foot. They would have a hard time. They, they could say, if we're going to balance the budget, well, that must mean you're going to bring in terrible austerity measures. And you saw it work with the, with the conservatives. They said they were initially going to balance the budget in two years. And Somewhere along the way, I said, no, no, I have five years. So enough so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, what, so it's what, an effective political positioning. What do you think of the conservatives' position now? You know, as, as you just said, they're not going to be able to slash enough or that would be politically untenable for them to slash enough in the first couple of years. So they say they will balance the budget in a little bit longer time frame. How do you view their political position on the deficit issue? On this, as on so many other issues, I just think they are prisoners of their own timidity. They do not have the confidence of their own convictions. They allow their opponents to uh, define them time after time after time. Uh, look, I'm not wedded to a two-year or three-year or four-year timetable. That, that's something on which reasonable people can differ. But there's no evidence that they have any serious plan to balance the budget. In fact, people who have crunched the numbers looking at the promises they've made said, I think uh, the last I looked at over four years, the liberal deficits would add up to $94 billion and the Tory deficits would add up to $80 billion. Maybe they'll announce something in the last couple of weeks of the campaign that will change that. But as it stands, they're marginally more fiscally responsible or less irresponsible than the liberals. Um, you don't actually have to, for the same reason that we were talking about, you don't actually have to slash and burn and decimate government to get to a balanced budget. It just requires making some choices. I do think fiscal conservatives should stop with the approach of just saying, you know what, we're going to take you know, an inch off the top of everything, uh, whether or not it's essential or, or inessential. Because uh, all you do is wind up annoying and frightening everybody because everybody thinks they're on the chopping block. You, you have huge battles with your unions no matter what you do. I think it would be a much more prudent approach in going forward is to say, what, good, what should government be doing and what should government not be doing? And make some choices and get government out of certain areas where they just, they're just not really playing much of a role at all. I'll give you a small example is, uh, the, the, probably the best single thing that I've heard Andrew Scheer, which is he hasn't said a lot during this campaign, was he was going to cut $1.5 billion out of corporate subsidies. Well, that's a start, but there's about $14 billion every year that we're, that we're basically throwing away on subsidizing economic activity that should meet market tests, and if it's not, you know, shouldn't be subsidized. They can make much deeper choices there, but they've got to start explaining what the underlying philosophy is behind it. They've got to start thinking about how do you create winners as well as losers from, from your policies. They've got to be a bit strategic about it. And I just think they're so nervous and frightened at being, quote unquote, defined by the liberals on this, that they wind up with these 
programs that you can see it in this election. Nobody is excited about the conservative platform so far as anybody can decide what decipher what the conservative platform is. Mm-hmm. And I think the point about cutting that one point five billion it it almost comes to this thing that Canadians always struggle with, which is the challenge of picking winners. Yes, and I think both the conservatives and the liberals seem to be showing an inability to do that with how they are focused on corporate spending, or as our friend Maxime Bernier would say, corporate welfare. Um, well, and that's the, and, and the, I use the word friend loosely. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's, the, that's the insoluble dilemma of picking winners and of subsidizing corporations is if the project or the corporation is economic, it doesn't need the subsidy. If it's not economic, it shouldn't get it. Uh, people who are allocating their own capital, investing their own capital, putting their own money at risk are just as capable, I would submit, if not more so, as government spending other people's money at figuring out what projects and what firms are likely to succeed. So all that subsidy does is interfere with that process. It get, gets people chasing subsidies rather than investing in projects that make real economic sense. Or investing in productivity, which we know has been another one of those conversations that has been on the back burner. You said something interesting when you said that people are pretty good at choosing for themselves, you know, what you want to invest your money in, what you don't want to invest your money in. I think one of the disconnects that we have when it comes to talking about the deficit is the challenge that is coming from Canadians being in a lot of debt right now. Canada, um, Canada's consumer debt and household debt is among the highest in the world. Again, because money is so cheap, people are borrowing, borrowing, borrowing. I think people are starting to feel the pressure of all that debt though. And there's almost this disconnect between the government's message of, oh, you know, beware of your personal debt and it's okay, guys, we'll just keep spend, spend, spending. What do you think about that disconnect and how the deficit issue can pull back to the everyday Canadian? Well, there's a germ of truth in it, which is governments are not in quite the same position as households. Uh, it's not to say that governments could never go bankrupt because they can in extremists, but they have to get way, way further into it than than an ordinary household does, partly because they have the power of the printing press. They can, they can you know, essentially print their way to some extent out of the debts at the cost of, of, of higher and higher inflation. Uh, so it's, tr- it's some truth in the short term. But the longer truth is if we get uh, interest rates resuming normal levels or indeed higher, uh, and that's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's going to happen someday, uh, then people who have made bets, whether they're in the public sector or the private sector, on eternal low interest rates are going to be in some trouble. They're going to face uh, much higher borrowing costs and a lot of their calculations are going to be uh, thrown off. So it's worth having some concern about the level of consumer debt. I think it was right, for example, the governments of, uh, I think of both stripes, uh, made measures to tighten uh, some of the lending standards of mortgage lending that had grown, had been loosened in previous years. Uh, And it's distressing to see in their different ways, particularly the conservatives saying we're going to loosen the stress tests and we're going to have longer amortization periods. This is part of what got us into this trouble in the first place. So we've got to get away from this idea that everybody should own a house, whether they can afford one or not. And it's just unfortunately not realistic. Uh, and we want people to be able to buy houses if and when they can afford to do so. And governments jimmying the rules to do so is is, is an absolute disaster in the United States and uh, certainly led things into a perilous state in Canada. Um, and we need to get away from that. When it comes to that risk of interest rates rising, it will cost more and more to service the debt at some point. You know, we are seeing rates um, getting a little lower in the global economy amidst a lot of international trade strife and a lot of uncertainty on the global scale. 
I mean, there's even negative interest rates in some places. But eventually, presumably, those rates will go up. What's the risk to Canada if those rates return to, say, what they were in the early 90s? Well, again, there's, there's, they're covered to some extent in that they are rolling over a lot of their existing debt uh, at these very low interest rates. So we'll, we'll have some insulation there. But if you're taking on lots and lots of new debt, and it happens to be happening when you have higher interest rates, then that over time that can build something. It's, again, it doesn't mean we're going to go to hell house, but I will put a cautionary note up there. In 1975, uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio was 18%. It's 30% today, so it was well under control. And within 10 years, uh, we were away to the races. We were up at 60% of debt-to-GDP ratio. So it's it can get out of hand if you get a spike in inflation. If I mean, things happen you don't expect uh, that, that nobody predicted, and, and you just don't want to give yourself... Uh, too much rope uh, so that you can get into trouble in those in those unexpected events. So that's uh, certainly part of the concern. And of course, the other big concern is the federal government is not the only borrower in this country. You mentioned, of course, private uh, consumer and household and, and, and corporate debt. That's one part of it. But so are the provinces. And the provinces are the big concern going forward if you're looking at the aging of the population and the costs that go with that, because most of that is for health care. And the single most worrisome study I've seen in recent times was, and it didn't get a lot of attention, was the one put up by the Parliamentary Budget Office, where they looked, they projected in, in 25 and 50 and 75 years, the debt to GDP levels of the provinces. Now, usually those long-term projections you can kind of take with a grain of salt because a lot can change. You know, you can't just make straight line extrapolations. But in this case, you're basically, those numbers are driven by demographics, which is very predictable, and healthcare, which is really hard to change. So you actually do need to take treat those numbers seriously. And for provinces like Manitoba and New Brunswick and Newfoundland, with by mid-century, you're looking at debt-to-GDP ratios well in excess of 100%, heading towards 200% by 2060 or so, heading even higher than that in, in the later years of, of the century. Uh, to put that in perspective, when Saskatchewan nearly hit the wall, as they say, in the 1990s, when they were within a few days of not being able to sell their bonds, they were at 60%. So you've got provinces that are in serious trouble. And now add to that, if you're a young person living in those provinces and you hear about that and you look at those numbers and you see what's coming down the track, what are you going to do? You're going to get out of Dodge. Well, because you see your tax dollars going exclusively to pay for the previous generation's health care exactly. costs, right? Exactly. And, and if they do, if you get more and more flight of young people from these provinces, it just accelerates that process. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at a serious prospect. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. And it's not saying it's going to necessarily happen, but certainly a serious prospect of one or more provinces defaulting on their debts. And that is what's called a fiscal crisis. So we have to get serious about this stuff. Takeaway, final takeaway from the deficit conversation. You're a voter going to the polls. What are you looking at when you're parsing this out? How important should this issue be when you're making your decision? I, I think some sense of fiscal realism, I guess, would would be advisable. I'd like to see one or more of the parties having some sense that that money is not just simply free. And if you look at the the, the promises that are happening in this election, it, there just seems to be no evidence of any sense of scarcity at all. And it's particularly acute when it's all about distribution. It's all about giving out stuff to people. And each of those programs may per, may be perfectly valid and necessary on its own. But you add them up, and when you look on the other side of the ledger, and there's no attention being paid, whatever, to the productivity challenge. And the productivity challenge is necessary to, just in general if we're going to pay for all these promises, but it's particularly necessary, again, in light of the aging of the population. The only way we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of that 
trench that we're heading towards, the only way that those future generations of taxpayers are going to be able to pay the crippling costs of yours and my health care when we're 90 or 100 uh, is if they're so much richer than we are. If we, if we, if we have so much you know, faster economic growth and, and productivity growth year after year after year after year for 20, 30, 40 years, that that next generation or two will be so much wealthier than we are that they can afford those really high costs of health care, which are coming down the track whether we like it or not. Absolutely. That will be, you know, productivity so key. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Emily Jackson and Andrew Coyne. More from Andrew at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.